Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Looking at the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we had Bruce Schneier on uh, talking about public interest technologists uh, and his desire to get more people to think about doing at least some tech work in the public interest. As he noted, nowadays everyone really understands public interest law, and most lawyers are expected to do at least some public interest work, even if they're at a big corporate law firm, they do some pro bono work and, and whatnot. Uh, however, the concept of public interest technology is still fairly nascent, uh, and there were issues on both the supply and the demand side of that, as we discussed in that podcast. Uh, however, as we noted, there are certainly some efforts out there to change this and to build out more knowledgeable people who understand both technology and policy. Uh, one such effort that we mentioned briefly in that podcast is the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub and its fellowship program. That is sort of, a, a, I guess, boot camp for uh, technologists uh, who are interested in better understanding the policy side uh, of, of what is going on. Uh, its inaugural fellowship class is uh, just about concluded, and applications for its second class are due by August 15th, which, depending on when you listen to this, is probably coming up very, very soon. Uh, so today on the podcast, uh, we have Betsy Cooper, who is the director of the uh, Aspen Tech Policy Hub, uh, and she's here to talk about the program. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with sort of the idea behind the program. Uh, is it fair, uh, as I described it, to call it sort of a policy boot camp for technologists? I think that's perfect. Uh, we tend to characterize it as an incubator. So uh, out here in Silicon Valley, we have a tremendous amount of innovation, and a lot of that innovation runs through incubation programs. Um, so Y Combinator or 500 Startups. And a while ago, I started to wonder, well, why don't we have anything like that for policymakers? Uh, I, I was working at UC Berkeley at the time, and we had a tremendous number of people who were interested in taking their sort of tech technology research. We had, you know, graduates who were working in tech who were interested in applying their technology expertise to real world problems, but there wasn't really a place to get that sort of training. And so we essentially created an incubator that provides them with that opportunity and uh, luckily pays them to do it. <laughs> and and um, so how does the program work? I mean, so, you, so you're taking people, so people apply, and if they get into the program, um, you're looking for people with sort of technology and entrepreneurial backgrounds um, who, who maybe don't have the policy expertise? Exactly. So we're looking first for technology experts of various stripes. So about half of our current cohort are engineers or coders, but then the other half are startup founders or mm -hmm. product managers, project managers. Um, we have a couple academics, a think tanker, you know, a consultant who works with technology. So uh, we're looking for technology experts of all stripes, whether they be coders or journalists or, uh, you know, academics, but we're looking for people who have that deep expertise 
expertise in some aspect of technology. And then we're looking for people who don't have a lot of policy expertise. So this is essentially uh, policy 101. Uh, we, <laughs> I think the current fellows would sort of say that it's uh, similar to trying to take an entire master's degree of public policy in 10 weeks, right? So it's an intense <laughs> program uh, that really gives you in-depth experience in the policy process and then puts you out in the world to build things both for real-world stakeholders and on topics that interest you. So, so yeah, explain sort of how the the program works. So it's ten, ten a ten week program, um, and you're trying to teach people stuff, but they're also working on on a real world world project at the same time. Yeah, so we sort of divided into two phases. Um, so um, the first phase is really sort of the boot camp, and then the second phase, let's call it the incubator phase. So mm -hmm. in the boot camp phase, um, and you know, I'm sort of uh, adjusting the timelines because we uh, actually learned that the program was maybe a little too short. So hmm. we're uh, like uh, basically going with a 10-week program from here on out. So um, so that's the timeline that'll give you. So if, if you join the program for this next cohort, the first four weeks uh, plus an extra day because of holidays will essentially be a boot camp. And there'll be three types of training that you'd get during that boot camp. So first, um, there are classes, um, and that's sort of the schooling portion. It's much less academic and much more practical. So instead of like theories of policy, we covered all theories of policy in approximately a 30-minute sort of session. Uh, instead, we do things like, how do you define a problem? Like, what are seven tips for coming up with a good policy problem? Or how do you choose between different stakeholders that want you want to target? How do you define policy impact? How do you create systemic change? How do you decide between alternatives? And so each of our classes is really focused on giving people practical advice and then having them sort of act out uh, within the classroom setting the process. So, uh, I, you know, we'll have them research and identify uh, different possible problems that they could solve, or we have them walk through real life examples of uh, developing a stakeholder map. So it's a much more practical sort of uh, how to do policy than mm -hmm. uh, than most programs I've seen before. Then the second aspect of the boot camp is really uh, putting it into practice. Um, so we have uh, different sessions in which instead of having uh, the normal academic process where you, you know, write a policy memo and I would essentially grade it as the quote unquote teacher, mm -hmm. we don't want that we want them to get feedback from me, but we and from you know people involved in our program. But we also want those things to go to the real world and for them to get feedback on people who would actually use this. Um, so, for instance, um, we had a policy memo exercise where every fellow had to write a policy memo. Um, I gave them feedback, and then we actually delivered feedback. Uh, um, so basically, they were writing on deepfakes, and mm -hmm. so. Uh, we put together a coalition of a commission that's really interested in deepfakes, uh, representatives from Facebook who are also super interested in deepfakes, and the Carnegie Endowment uh, for International Peace who are also doing work on deepfakes. And no. essentially, the fellows pitched those ideas directly to the stakeholders. And then actually, even better, uh, the commission, it's a commission on transatlantic election integrity, is actually interested in bringing some of those ideas up to the commission. So it's deeply possible that the fellows' ideas for how to manage deepfakes while still encouraging free speech will actually make it to real-world stakeholders. And that was a, a you know exercise they did like in their first two weeks in the program. Um, then we also did a 48-hour exercise. So after all the lectures, uh, we basically gave them the opportunity to take 48 hours to solve a real-world problem. And in this case, we focused on... Uh, 
event security. So how do you improve physical security for big events occurring in cities? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got representatives from Eventbrite, the city of San Francisco, and race organizers to go through a hypothetical exercise about how you would improve event security. And what we're hearing is that at least one of those ideas, the city has already taken back to try to have real world impact. So so that second portion is really about, you know, giving them an experience, not just of doing policy, but doing it in a way that can have impact from the very first day they walk in the program. And then the third aspect of the boot camp is really the substance. So we're focused on tech policy. Um, So we bring in uh, experts from different aspects of tech policy to give people sort of the state of the art and to inspire the fellows as to what topics they might want to work on. So we had Chris Riley from Mozilla come in uh, to sort of educate the fellows on that. Um, On Tech Policy 101, we had uh, Tara Lyons from the Partnership on AI come in on AI 101. We had Beth George, who used to run uh, DOD uh, sort of uh, in the legal office. She came in to talk about Cybersecurity 101. So we really got sort of high-level people to come in uh, and teach the fellows about the topic. And then we brought in a panel of experts uh, from different perspectives to say, here's what I wish technologists were working on in this space. And in addition to that, of course, we've had a bunch of uh, series of people come in. Uh, You know, we had a dinner with Janet Napolitano, former secretary of DHS last night. Um, We've had uh, reporters. We've had uh, people representing cities. We've had all sorts of experts. We met with the lieutenant governor of the state of California. So we've really tried to expose them to people in the policy space and especially in the tech policy space who could inspire the fellows. So that's sort of the boot camp side of things. And then at the end of the 48 hours, the fellows then sort of transition to phase two, which is working on their final projects. So uh, to get into the program, you have to pitch an idea of what you might want to work on. Um, And so uh, we get a sense of what interests might lie within the cohort. Uh, we do have a couple priority areas that we're interested in, such as cybersecurity or artificial intelligence or misinformation, disinformation, or using technology for good or social justice. So those are some of the areas that we look for. But then the fellows sort of bond as a class, and this class is super well integrated. They really you know, spend a lot of time together, and many of them wanted to work on projects together. Hmm. And so they sort of did a brainstorming session uh, towards the end of the boot camp in which they decided on final projects. And then going forward, you would essentially have six weeks, a design sprint to scope your problem, to do research, to come up with a stakeholder map and to develop a really practical output of some kind that could help the stakeholders. So uh, it could be an app or a website. It could be mock legislation. It could be an operational plan for a new program. Um, It could be a game. Uh, These are all outputs that our current fellowship class are considering. But what we really want in that second phase is to produce real-world outputs that have an impact on the stakeholders that they're trying to reach, because our whole goal is to encourage technologists to be able to get systemic policy impact cool yeah that's that's really interesting so um i mean <clears throat> you described in general some of the, the kinds of projects that people are working on are there any any specific examples you want to discuss it might be fun to 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 understand what what it is um some of the, the uh, current class went for Sure. So it's a real interesting diversity. So I'll give you three examples off the top of my head. So first, um, we have a fellow who comes to us who's uh, sort of a computer science guy, you know, PhD in computer science, uh, uh, tech founder 
who's really interested in the process by which policy is made. And so Mm -hmm. he is borrowing the concept of test-driven development, which is very common in coding. You know, you sort of use tests by which to determine whether your code is accurate. You know, when you're testing sort of a phone number, you want to, you know, a phone number field, you want to make sure that only phone numbers go into that field and nothing that's not a phone number goes into that field. And so you write different tests Mm -hmm. to see what would happen if you put in, you know, an international phone number or 911 or, you know, all sorts of different things. And so this fellow identified early on that policy is not made that way generally. Right. <laughs> uh, we, we don't normally test our ideas. We tend to yeah. sit in a room, come up with an idea, write a paper about it. And then if you're lucky, you get it to a stakeholder who will implement it. And that's even more true when you think about lobbying and advocacy. So this fellow is essentially creating a how-to guide for how to use test-driven development to affect the policy process. And then he's going to work with a few think tanks and government officials to try to get them to trial that process. And so um, there's been a lot of excitement around that type of idea. And I think it's, you know, essential. And I I love the fact that that project is really trying to break the policy process as a whole. It's trying to hit systemic change, not by taking one particular idea, but by giving policymakers a new tool coming from computer science. So that's one. Yeah, I I mean, and that's a really good one. And actually, you know, on the when we had uh, Bruce Schneier on the on the podcast, that was one area that we ended up discussing a lot, just the idea of like how you know code in particular and policy are developed in such different ways right i mean it's like the right. you know you know one involves sort of testing and iterating and and seeing and having you know a little hypothesis and testing and seeing what happens and adjusting whereas the other is like we're going to think through everything you know write out something solve it and then forget you know forget to ever check it again unless something goes really really wrong which you know is is a very very different process so that's really interesting that that you know one of the first projects is is actually an attempt to to at least think through ways that might be done differently Right. And I think, you know, coming up, it's been an interesting translational exercise, too, because, you know, for the fellow, it is so obvious how test driven development works. And all of our coders are like, we totally get it for someone like me who comes from the background in which, you know, I came to technology having worked in policy and sort of was brought in from that angle. I'm kind of an interesting foil (laughs) asking him to give me more information about the process, uh, because I think that that's one of the challenges. But yeah. You know, it's been great, though, as I'm sure all your listeners are aware, there's really a handful of people who purely cross that technology and policy divide. Bruce and I are being a great example of them. Um, And that's a and there's been a lot of excitement from that community because they finally feel like this is a project where both sides can get excited. So that's been really great. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So you mentioned the two other projects you wanted to mention as well. Yes. So uh, a second project is really focused. um, And I think, you know, unsurprisingly, since we have a few academics, there's a lot of interest in working with tech companies to get more research so that we can create better Mm. policies. And one of the big challenges that has been approaching as, you know, more and more of the tech companies are getting sued. uh, As a lawyer, I very much appreciate uh, (laughs) this problem. But, you know, there's lawsuits, there's uh, the GDPR, the European privacy rules, Mm -hmm. there's the California state privacy rules. All of these things are incredibly important, but are having essentially a dampening effect on companies' willingness to share. Um, And so uh, some of our fellows are particularly concerned with, you know, instances, for instance, where human rights abuses may appear briefly online and then are taken down 
because they violate the company's terms of service. And that's great from a like external, you don't want that information to go viral perspective, but it's bad from the investigator's perspective where mm-hmm. human rights abuse investigators are not able to actually access that information. And at Berkeley, there's a great center, the Human Rights Center, that's focused specifically on that problem. So our fellows are trying to come up with both, uh, you know, sort of a multi-stakeholder framework by which these uh, conversations could happen more actively and to come up with sort of technical solutions by which you could actually have uh, better sharing. So mm-hmm. is there a way to sort of, you know, sandbox the information or, you know, provide uh, some sort of technical solution that would enable engagement, especially for smaller companies that don't have the bandwidth of a Facebook or a Google to create their own in-house solutions, but may actually nevertheless uh, be facing the same problem and have the same opportunity for engagement. So, so I think Think that that's uh, another project where we're sort of combining, you know, in this case, uh, the expertise of an academic with the expertise of a coder, and we're producing, you know, work that we hope will help inform how to improve policy down the road for sort of, you know, these human rights abuses and for other vulnerable stakeholders. So yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's important. There's there's been a lot of um, discussion recently. I mean, like, you know, there are examples of like. Um, you know, terrorist content or, or like, you know, ISIS beheading videos and, and things like that. And there was, you know, there was a guy, uh, who for academic reasons was sort of collecting a bunch of them and, and, you know, wanted to make them available for, for research purposes. That is obviously important. But at the same time, there are lots of people who you know, quite understandably think like, well, wait, you know, we don't necessarily want like a whole bunch of, of, like ISIS propaganda videos, you know, spreading all over the place. And so there's this, this tension between, you know, how do you, how do you make those things available? Don't delete them from history, but not, not set them up in a way that they'd be useful for, for the, you know, propaganda, propaganda angle uh, to it. So it's interesting just to hear that, that someone's working on that. That's exactly right. And there are great, you know, work already going on in this space. There's an organization called Social Science One. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some Stanford academics are deeply involved in that. And so there are already partnerships focused on this space. But I don't think as many people are focused on the smaller platforms that don't yep. have the bandwidth of the big ones to engage. Yep. And so we're, we're really hoping uh, to see what sorts of stakeholders need to be in the room in order to, you know, produce solutions in that space. So um, so we're pretty excited to see where that project goes. Cool. And then I guess the third project, um, you know, there are a couple others I could share. There's so many that are exciting. Sure. Um, but this one is already, uh, I think, making some good headway. So it's a good example of the sort of rapid response time. So one of the things we tell the fellows from day one is that policy does not work at the speed of technology. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, and I think that goes both ways. So, uh, so oftentimes policy can work incredibly slowly in terms of you come up with a good idea and it takes years to implement it. Right. But also there's the other side of that where you're constantly responding to external events and needing to uh, come up very quickly with some sort of uh, response. And so very often when you're working in policy, you don't have, you know, six days, eight days, two months to produce something on a timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you'll get a call at 9 a.m. and by noon you have to have the language in front of the person that you want to impact or you've lost your opportunity. And I think that came as a surprise 
surprise to many, especially of our coders and startup founders, uh, whose timelines are fast, but they're not fast to that degree. Right. Um, and so uh, one of our fellows is working on a project uh, with uh, focused on the state of Florida, and she's she's from Florida, and she's particularly interested in this new requirement that the state of Florida has um, to create a database to collect information on uh, you know students, you know children under the age of eighteen, in order to try to prevent school shootings. So this comes out of the you know horrific events of Parkland, mm -hmm. and you know especially in the wake of the Gilroy shooting just a couple of days ago here, you know I think those issues remain very raw. And it's very important to try to identify, uh, you know, possible people who uh, want to commit, you know, huge violent acts. Uh, it's a mm -hmm. it's a devastating problem. At the same time, though, uh, and not dissimilar to sort of the, you know, issues we were just discussing about, you know, uh, human rights abuses online. Um, it, it's the solution that the state of Florida has created is to collect tons of data mm -hmm. on all students without an opt out clause uh, right. that will therefore enable this huge data collection. Um, and they've asked for that to be put together in a very short amount of time. I don't remember the exact length of time, but a matter of months. Some firm is going to be contracted to collect data on many students. And so our fellow has rightly identified that, you know, technologists are not being consulted in the process of building that database, in the process of how it should run, in the uh, security and privacy and other types of effects that are, may happen as the result of that. And so this fellow, uh, you know, sort of realized that there was a huge set of problems and her background is really in educational technology. So she's trying to create a bunch of different types of outputs uh, from games to, you know, sort of advertising campaigns to, you know, really try to get stakeholders into the space to be aware of this new program coming down the pipeline and to give them tools to actually enable them to advocate, uh, you know, on their own behalf uh, for how this this uh, new technology should be shaped. And, you know, so sort of she's plodding along on her like four week timeline and then reaches out to a stakeholder who's like, oh, we should definitely try to place an op ed uh, on this issue. And so our hmm. fellow is quickly learning how to write an op ed, writing an <laughs> op ed. And we're uh, working to place that right now uh, because, you know, having the voice of a parent from Florida who is also a technologist is sort of a unique voice in that space. And so it's been really great to see as our fellows start to engage, even in the early days of their projects, how sometimes we have these immediate reactions um, that enable them to have real world impact right away on things that they really care about. And so we're really proud to see that, you know, this is far from an academic exercise. This is like, there are real problems and way more than we can solve. It's just a small amount of fellows, but there's tremendous appetite for technologists who want to engage in solving real world problems. And so, so that's been really heartening to see. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. It's it's kind of interesting to see what you know. Also, the sort of variety of of projects that are there. Um, so for people who are listening to this, who are who might potentially be interested in applying to be a part of the program, um, you know, what uh, what are you looking for? I mean, I think you discussed a little bit up front, but you know, what's what what should uh, someone who's listening to this think if they're thinking about or, or you know prepare for if they're looking to uh, apply to the program? 
Great. So, I mean, I think a, a couple things. So first, um, the basic requirement is you have to be 21 to apply for the program. There's no specific academic requirements. Uh, we love all types of creative people. Um, you do need to be able to show, though, that you're a technology expert in some way. So uh, regardless of your background, we want to know what is your expertise in with regard to technology and how do you want to bring that to bear in a program like this? Um, second, we're looking for people who are really passionate about solving real world problems. Uh, as I mentioned, this is uh, not one of those fellowship programs where you just sort of roll in, sit around for 10 weeks, meet some cool people, go to a few seminars and, you know, work 20 hours a week. It's a real mm -hmm. intensive program um, in which we teach you a lot. We hope we give you a lot. We certainly introduce you to some, you know, tremendously amazing people, but you really have to have the energy to want to participate in the program. Um, it is a full-time program. Um, about half of our fellows are on leaves of absences from their jobs to participate, and about half are sort of in transition. You know, their startup was wrapping up, or mm -hmm. uh, they were able to, you know, sort of take a, some transition time. So that's usually the profile of people we get. But it is a full-time program. Uh, we ask that people be in the office four days a week and that they're working five days a week for the length of the fellowship. And, and, uh, and, and the office is where? Um, so right now we're actually sharing with Code for America. So mm -hmm. we're at fifth admission. Um, we haven't uh, confirmed a space for the next cohort yet, but okay. I'm, it will be in either San Francisco or Oakland, um, highly likely in that Powell or Montgomery Street BART area because we want to make it possible for people from the peninsula, people from Oakland, right. people from wherever in the Bay to come. And by the way, you need not be local to the Bay. We do pay relocation. Um, about half of our fellows came specifically to spend time in the Bay. So if you are somebody who is uh, located somewhere cold and want to come spend <laughs> January and February in the Bay Area, um, that's great as long as you're passionate about also doing the program. Um, we uh, are looking for people uh, who can write clearly. Mm -hmm. um, no matter what type of policy you're doing, you need to be able to write. And so we're looking for people to really show that off. Um, and so we do ask that people write a sample policy memo. We have a couple webinars coming up on the 7th and on the 14th uh, that uh, will train people on how to engage uh, with the policy memo writing process. The most important things are, one, creativity. We want to know that you can come up with a creative solution. And two, that you can write and explain it clearly. The number one reason why people didn't get accepted to the program last time is that they might have had a good nugget of an idea, but we couldn't quite understand it. Mm. And so I think that's very similar to what Y Combinator has said about many of their startups, which is that, you know, we can get a sense maybe of the idea, but we don't fully grapple with it. And so we can't know how creative it is or interesting it is. And right. so we're looking for people who uh, can express their ideas uh, similar to that. And so we actually borrow a lot of the Y Combinator uh, application or variants of it uh, precisely to try to get at that. And then I think the final thing that's relevant is uh, work authorization. So anybody who has work authorization in the United States is eligible to apply, but there are some complications for people, for instance, on H-1Bs that have to stick to one employer. Uh, so if you're in that situation, it's worth inquiring with your employer as to whether you'd be eligible to do the program um, and also talk to us if you encounter specific problems. But at this current time, we can't sponsor visas for people to join the program. Uh, so we need people who already have work authorization in the United States um, in some capacity. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and do you know what, you know, people in the, the first group, um, I mean, you said some of them are on leave um, and others are sort of transitioning. Are they are, are people moving into sort of taking this um, fellowship and, and moving into some sort of policy role or do you not know yet? Yeah, it's probably too early to say for this cohort. And we sort of expect this to be an iterative process. Um, you know, we actually hope that many of our fellows go back to their initial jobs, but join more cross-functional teams or take on more cross-functional roles where they're engaged more in strategy and policy. So uh, we will not be upset at all if many of our fellows return to their tech jobs, but hopefully engage in a different way internally within their companies. Or we actually have a couple of fellows that are doing technical roles within the U.S. government, and we hope that they'll start to think about the policy implications of their work uh, as they're going forward. So um, so for us, it's, you know, we're trying to create an ecosystem, not a specific type of uh, role. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a win, too. Um, we do definitely have fellows who are interested in programs like Tech Congress, uh, the program that mm -hmm. places technologists into Congress. They're great partners of ours and their applications are due a couple of days after ours. So if you're already a bit more policy experienced, I think that's a great place to look. Um, we have folks who are interested in roles like the U.S. Digital Service. And then I think, you know, as uh, as we head towards the next election cycle, we have many fellows who are interested in policy roles down the role down the road, either as current government officials transition out or uh, as new opportunities come in with a new administration. I think we still have a challenge, uh, which we're not directly working on yet, but hope to focus on down the road, which is that uh, lots of people want to do this work, but don't want to relocate to D.C. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's tremendous amount of impact that we can have if we created more government rules for technologists that were actually based out here in the Valley or in other places in the United States rather than always 100% requiring relocation to D.C. And so that's not what the hub's focused on specifically right now, but I do think there's you know tremendous energy around creating those opportunities. Uh, for now, most of the time, you'd still have to relocate to D.C. Many of our fellows have young families and, you know, are, uh, you know, so that can be a difficult thing to do. But we've also got tremendous inspiration from people like Todd Park or Tom mm -hmm. Khalil, you know, folks who joined the administration and actually commuted for many years back and forth from the Valley to D.C. So if you're passionate enough about the impact you can have, it definitely can be done. Yeah. Interesting. Um uh, a question that I'm sure is going to come up um, is that, you know, a question of, you know, are there are there specific policies that the the hub is advocating for or, or supporting or, you know, looking for in particular? You, you mentioned a few sort of categories of things, um, but, you know, I figured we should address that directly in terms of, you know, is, you know, is the hub taking a position on any any particular policy things? So uh, we don't take a position, you know, the we're, we're sponsored by the Aspen Institute, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. So we advocate, uh, but we don't uh, lobby or anything like that. And for purposes of our fellowship program, the fellows really come up with the ideas. So mm -hmm. the only real restrictions are it has to be legal and it has to not <laughs> cross the line 
of political activity or lobbying. So we did have to have some conversations with fellows about, you know, you can't lobby for a particular piece of legislation. You can educate policymakers about legislation, but you can't, add, you know, you can't try to push a particular piece of legislation. And you also can't do political activity. So you can't try to run a political campaign out of the hub. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, those are some restrictions. But other than that, the fellows own their own IP for what they produce. They just license it to us so we can advertise it. Um, and they uh, get to, you know, sort of pick policy ideas. Um, so I don't always agree with the positions that our fellows are taking. But the purpose of the fellowship is for them to seek to have impact and to go through that process and to put out their ideas. And I don't see it as our role to to try to, you know, shape that beyond trying to help make it more realistic or help uh, encourage impact uh um, we do, you know, sort of have an idea in the long term about utilizing this ecosystem of the policy alums, as well as mm-hmm. other great people who are already out here in the valley uh, who want to have impact. So down the road, for instance, I would like organizations to be able to approach us and say, hey, we're working on this particular problem that's at the intersection of policy and technology. So, you know, uh, maybe a company is looking to help support a nonprofit focused on, you know, better encryption, or maybe we have a government body that's really struggling around uh, questions of misinformation uh, like the Transatlantic Commission that we worked with and want new ideas in the ecosystem. And I would love down the road to be able to intake those uh, projects and to provide responses uh, based on a subset of interested fellows who would like to work on those issues. Um, but that would always be separate from the fellowship program. So you'd have to mm-hmm. be an alum to participate in that. And it also uh, would require just kind of a different system than what we have set up with now. So we sort of see that as a long term goal is to create, uh, you know, a think and do capacity Mm -hmm. for hub alums. uh, But we also want to keep the fellowship really independent and enable our fellows to work on the issues, topics and policies that interest them so that they get a real taste of what it's like to do this work. Yeah. And and that leads into to the follow-up question I had, which is, I mean, you know, this program is new and you're just sort of finishing with the first uh, cohort and, and preparing for the second, um, you know, where, well, first, like what, a, beyond the fact that you need 10 weeks, <laughs> what have you learned uh, from the first go round that, that you think will change the program going forward? And then uh, following that, like, where, where do you see this program in a few years? Yeah, so I think um, first what we're going to do better, I think, so we're thrilled with the cohort that we have. They are so energetic, so engaged, um, you know, very often – uh, we ran long on almost any session that we set up because we had so many questions and I like found myself in the unenviable role of having to cut off great conversations because like the next person was arriving. Um, so uh, part of that was because our first cohort was only eight weeks and a couple days um, uh, with the option for a third month for some uh, fellows to extend. And so, you know, just when you uh, try to shrink a boot camp to like three weeks, uh, it just was too short. And so we definitely want to extend that to a full four weeks uh, 
and to ensure that there's a better opportunity for those conversations to go on and more opportunity than I initially anticipated for the fellows to work together, sort of thinking about projects and engaging with each other more actively early on. Um, we didn't want too much of the program to be focused on the final projects. We, we see this as much broader than just the project that you produce at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we overcompensated in the other direction and want to provide more time for the fellows to engage because their engagement with each other is equally important to the engagement that they have with the policymakers, with us, with the curriculum, et cetera. Um, I think we will also, you know, really uh, encourage people to um, to think about collaboration. So one of the changes that we made uh, quickly in the program is that every fellow for their final projects has to work on at least two projects. So they have an 80% mm-hmm. project and a 20% project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we borrowed this from U.S. Digital Service so that no fellow would be working on their project alone from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't decide that until quite late in the process. Um, and we're really glad that we did, but it did, I think, you know, create situations where some fellows had projects that just didn't have, you know, other uh, in, uh, other folks that had the expertise to engage. And so I think we'll uh, be looking for that, uh, you know, sort of going forward as well. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, we're really interested in uh, trying to grow even more policy impact. So we did a good job, I think, of exposing people to lots of different things they could work on. Uh, but uh, I think we can do even better in uh, trying to get specific problems in front of the fellows, not to try to shape their outcomes, but mm-hmm. to give them ideas so that perhaps they could settle on their projects a little earlier. So we're definitely going to bump up earlier the date of final decisions for the projects to before the 48-hour exercise rather than after it. Hmm. And we hope that that will give the fellows more time to actually fully dig into their projects and make more progress on them. Um, so that that's, I think, another uh, area in which uh, in which we'll improve. But overall, you know, if you'd asked me what I imagine the first cohort to look like, um, uh, you know, this is pretty much beyond my wildest dreams <laughs> of how much impact we've already been able to have, how engaged everybody is, you know, sort of the response we've gotten from people who have met the cohort. Um, you know, it's just been, you know, phenomenal. Um, in terms of what we'd like to see going forward, I think, you know, we'd like to grow the number of cohorts we can accept. So next year we'll have a winter and summer cohort. Um, and we'll also, uh, you know, down the road even consider adding a third. We'd like to expand, you know, fundraising permitting to the number of fellows we can take in each cohort. So we may eventually aim for more like 18. We had 15 in the current cohort. So we can mm-hmm. just have more training impact on the fellows. Um We'd like to provide more opportunities for our alums, um, mm-hmm. so uh, both in terms of jobs and opportunities like that, but also, as I mentioned, to engage with us more actively on projects that we might take in-house that alums and other engaged people in the space can get involved with so that we can provide sort of that rapid response capacity. And then I think we're going to consider whether it makes sense to uh, do other areas of science and technology policy uh, where we could have impact. So imagine a cohort that's focused on climate change mm-hmm. or imagine a cohort that's focused on improving our immigration system using technology or, you know, there are lots of topic areas that we could consider. So I think, you know, we're piloting not just a, you know, 
a, a type of training for technologists, but a, a new way of training people generally on how to engage in the policy process, a much more practical, pragmatic, uh, engaged way of doing that. And so uh, we think that this is a methodology that could be taken to lots of different places. And so, uh, so we're super excited to see where that goes. Uh, but we're also remaining extremely focused on sort of building this uh, this fellowship program to be the best that it can be. And while we're pretty happy with the pilot, uh, we'll, we're definitely excited to improve and make it even better for the next great cohort. Cool. And so for, for people who are listening who might be interested in applying, where do they have to go to do that and what do they have to do? Um, so you can go to aspentechpolicyhub.org. Um, and, uh, we have all the application materials right on the fellowship page of the website. Um, there are two webinars that folks can come to, um, one on the 7th and one on the 14th. Um, so you can sign up directly from the fellowship page, um, to the Zoom links there. Um, and we also have an event, uh, we're doing a joint event with Tech Congress, um, on uh, August 7th at Manny's from 5 to 7. So if you're interested in coming meet us in person, learning more about Tech Congress and the Hub Fellowship, uh, we'd love to have folks join us there. Um, we just advise people uh, really take the time to edit their applications. Uh, frankly, we received most of our applications in the last 48 hours anyways. And we, <laughs> so we, we know how technologists work, so we're not going to be surprised by that this time. Um <laughs> But uh, we did have tremendous interest last time. We got 271 applications, wow. so it is a, quite a competitive process. Um, and the most important thing you can do is just take the time to really think of a creative idea and then edit your application. Uh, it's not a long application at all, but the strong applications were the ones that had clearly, you know, done it, done some word uh, copy editing, didn't have typos, you know, really took the time to express their ideas. And uh, that's, you know, we're looking for your passion. We're looking for your creativity and you've got to be able to write to show us that. So, so, so that's the main thing that I'd advise people do. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then we're, we'd just be really excited to have diverse people. So uh, the most common question I get from people is, you know, I don't know that much about policy. Should I apply? And the answer is absolutely yes. If you're interested in changing the world, if there are things that you care about, whether it's misinformation or cybersecurity or, you know, data privacy or, you know, changing the way that we build technology to make it for a social good, you are the people that we want. And we really, really hope you'll apply. Cool. Well, there you go. <laughs> for, for anyone listening, uh, if, if this sounds appealing, definitely check it out. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think it's a great program and I'm excited to, to see what's, what's already happening and, and what's going to happen with it going forward. So, and uh, we'll have to have you come meet the fellows uh, yeah. at some point soon. So, uh, so all are welcome and, uh, we're really excited, uh, to have the support of the Tector community. Cool. Excellent. Um, well, uh, unless you have any last uh, final words for, for, for listeners. Uh, I think that was great. I think we covered everything that I, I hope to cover. No, I just say, you know, we really need more technologists thinking about these questions. We, yeah. uh, one of the things our fellows keep joking about, uh, is that every single speaker comes in like to like every single one comes in and says, People in policy don't understand technology. We need more technologists in policy. So whether you're interested in our program, interested in Tech Congress, or just want to work within your companies, 
to improve the way that people communicate on these issues. It's an incredibly important thing that our society needs. And uh, so whether you're interested in our program or not, I hope you will be interested in contributing to that community. Great. Uh, that's perfect. Um, so Betsy, uh, thanks so much. Uh, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this program. I think it's great, a great idea and I'm excited to see how it, it works. And, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another podcast. So, thanks. Thanks so much. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.